Hello, everyone. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program, where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true. This is where we help believers become thinkers, and thinkers become believers. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis, and today we have a radio show that's going to be very, very interesting. Today we're going to be talking about genetics and intelligent design. And Keith, I've always been of the persuasion that the human genome is actually going to be the thumbprint of God, and I firmly believe that. It seems to be showing more and more that it is. Indeed. You are listening to Keith Kendricks. Hello, Keith. Hello, Mike. It's good to have you back on the show. Indeed. I'm, I'm excited to be here. I love, I love doing the scientific part of this show. And today uh, it's chock full of science. It is. But you know what, Keith? Before we get started, I just wanted to make an advertisement, if I can, for a, uh, an upcoming radio show in about three weeks' time. We're going to have a very, very special guest who is actually a world-renowned speaker. Her name is Pam Stenzel, and she travels the world, and she talks about teenage sexuality, and she's going to tell us why it's more important today than ever for the teenagers and young adults in this world, in this culture, to remain pure. So we're going to be talking about the results of the sexual revolution as it impacts now in the second and third generation from that time, and why it is that teenage sexuality and purity are more important than ever, ever before. I'm really looking forward to that yep. uh, and talk, Mike. And that's and going to be Sunday, July 17th, Great, right on this radio station. That's right. So make sure you tune in in the future, folks. Today we're going to be talking about genetics and intelligent design. But I understand that before we do that, we have one other comment that you'd like to make on a, an email that the, the radio received. That's on, right. On we, the show. we got some fan mail, so I thought I'd read that. And we'll give a shout-out to Steve. He sent us an email recently that says, Enjoying your programs. Hi, Keith, Mike, and Kirk. Just wanted to drop you a little note to tell you how much I really enjoy your program. I drive a lot in my job, and having your programs to listen to has been a great blessing. I look forward to what you will do in the future. A comment about the debates with irreligious sophistry, if I may. I was pleasantly surprised by the first one, lots of good dialogue, and the two atheists came across as respectful and generally open to hearing the information you presented. You remember that, Mike, yes. that was the one that you and I did. Because of that, I was very dismayed when I heard the second debate that they sponsored. They seemed to base much of their dialogue with you on traveling down strange tangents and side streets i.e. that weird bit about the inerrant biblical association that Leighton wouldn't drop. Now, Mike, you weren't in on that debate, but one of the atheists talked about a organization which he called the inerrant biblical association, which Kirk and I had no idea what he was talking about, and it, apparently it's actually the biblical research associates that he was talking about. But he seemed to, I'm not sure if he deliberately mixed up the name or because actually at one point he did say it correctly, but that was later on. And he wanted to condemn some of the archaeological evidence that they had brought out. Well, it was very strange because he mentioned something that we had talked about in the past by a different archaeologist and he seemed to imply that what we were talking about was what he was talking about by a different archaeologist, and he, it was just very confusing. He kept saying that, no, your argument is from this other person, and then he gave that argument and had nothing to do with anything we had talked about. But anyways, that's what this uh, fan is talking about. It was very confusing. He wound up, I, I looked up what Leighton was actually talking about, and Leighton was seeming to claim that Jericho 
could not be dated to the biblical time frame because of carbon-14 dating that showed that it was 150 years prior. And so when the Israelites wouldn't have gotten there, the walls would have already been down. But just doing a little research, I found that back in the year 2000, there were a lot more carbon-14 dates taken from the Jericho level at that precise time, yeah. the ex excavation. And there were dates that ranged everywhere from 1883 to 1262 BC. So a 600 year range. So there's absolutely no help from the carbon 14 dating for this question is when did the walls fall? So you rely back on what Israeli antiquities uses as their prime dating method, which is pottery. That is the most accurate way. It's well known. The science is very clear. And the pottery shows that the walls of Jericho fell in about 1400 BC. The other piece of information that was so easy to look up that the atheists could have looked up was the scarabs that were found there. Scarabs often had the names of the current pharaohs on the back. And the pharaoh Hathshepsut, which was the woman pharaoh who we believe when she was a small girl, she's the one who picked Moses up out of the river. So... Her name is there, and if the walls had fallen 150 years prior, that scarab wouldn't be there. So the evidence really does show that Jericho fits the biblical explanation. You know, Keith, just from a, uh, a carbon dating perspective, mm -hmm. the same argument that you just used with respect to carbon dating being so vague and so inaccurate can also be applied to many, many other atheistic finds or arguments. That's true. And you don't want to cherry pick your data. He seemed to just pick one date and say that that is what it was. No, you have to look at all of the data. All right. Well, let's go on with our fan letter. As I said, he was mentioning about Leighton. And then he goes on and says, and talking about the atheists, they were refuting everything you presented. And now I'll, I'll have to disagree and say they rejected everything we presented. They didn't refute it. But they rejected everything you presented without even considering the power of the evidence, i.e. their absolute refusal to consider the incredible manuscript evidence for the New Testament. Above all things, I found them to be incredibly patronizing, immature, improfessional, rude, and absolutely intellectually dishonest. You guys never responded with another debate analysis podcast. Now, he's mentioning that we spent a whole show dissecting the first debate, but for the second debate, we wound up not dissecting the whole thing. The whole debate was two hours long, and we had problems with the audio. We were on Skype, and it kept cutting out. It cut out four times on us. So we wound up not being able to use the uh, sound for what we thought we'd do was a debate analysis, and it just was too difficult to work with. So we may use pieces of it in the future when we talk about certain topics, but we did spend about 15, 20 minutes on the show after talking about the debate. And uh, basically, we said much the same that this fan says. So anyways, he continues. This is Steve again. Thanks again for putting together such a great organization. Your level of knowledge on these issues is humbling and enlightening. Steve. Well, thank you, Steve. We appreciate all the fan mail. And remember, if you'd like to ask us questions or send emails, you can send them to email at evidence for faith.com. That's evidence, the number for faith.com. 
So, Keith, I understand that you have some very, very interesting and delicious information about apples. Yeah, this is really neat, Mike. I love this kind of thing. You know that we've talked on the show in the past about how geneticists are tracing species back to their original gene pools. How, for instance, the project that National Geographic is doing to trace human ancestry back, and it goes back to the Middle East they say North Africa, but the data we've discussed in past shows actually points to the Middle East. But regardless of that, they've also traced back dogs, all dog species traced back to a Middle Eastern wolf. Well, botanists have also done this with plants, specifically the apple. So I found this really fascinating. There's a place in Kazakhstan called Almaty, and Almaty is the home of the apple. Right now, there's 2,500 varieties or species of apples that are kept in the United States in New York City in a gene bank. So these are seeds and twigs that are frozen and stored to be saved for future use. Ever since Johnny Appleseed spread apples across the United States, the number of varieties of apples has been dramatically declining. Apples have big problems mostly because of their poor resistance to disease. In fact, apple crops are the crop that is most, he most heavily depends on pesticides to keep it from being attacked. So scientists are really interested in finding earlier genetic stock that has not decayed away. And as you know, Mike, we've done quite a bit of talking on this show about the decay of genetic information that happens when species adapt to different environments, they lose genetic information and they get worse and worse. Well, the same thing is happening. We've mentioned that it's happening with corn and it's also happening with apples. So scientists were searching for these genes to try to collect as much of the actual gene pool as they could. And what they were able to find was in Almaty, Kazakhstan, there are a huge number of apple species. The trees are larger and more robust. The fruit size, believe it or not, varies from the size of a small pumpkin. Can you imagine an apple that big, the size of a small pumpkin, to apples that are the size of peas? The colors range from pale yellow to lime green to burgundy to cocoa brown. The taste varies everything from bitter to sweet and one of the most unusual flavors is an apple that tastes like a combination between banana and hazelnut. Wow. So fabulous. And, and this just points to the magnificent variety that God gave to the initial species, the initial plant kinds, the initial animal kinds. So much variety all ready to be adapted so that when these species went to different areas, transported and grew or as animals began to live in different environments, they had the genetic wherewithal to change and become different. So just as dogs changed, so also apples changed. So in desert areas, you find apples that are more drought resistant. In cold areas, there are apples that have genetic information that help them to survive in a cold area. In wet areas, they've found apples that are more disease resistant. So this is just a fascinating evidence that the biblical description of God creating animals and plants as kinds 
is really true. Well, Keith, let me, let me ask you a pointed question because some of our listeners may actually be a little bit confused by this genetic diversity. And if I can play devil's advocate, uh, I would say, but Keith, isn't this genetic diversity evidence that it's evolution, this change and this, this, this ability to adapt? And technically, you'd be absolutely right. However, it's microevolution. Okay, so what's the difference between micro and macroevolution? Well, macroevolution is large-scale change. So that would be an example would be a microbe becoming a microbiologist or a mouse becoming a musical maestro. Large-scale change, an alligator changing into an elephant, a bat changing into a rhinoceros or okay. any other kind so, of major change. So keep on track. Tell me why it is that microevolution and the apple, for instance, from Kazakhstan is a great example of genetic diversity that was pre-programmed from day one, from the day of creation, and why it's so important to adaptation. Well, it just shows that what we're finding as evidence and what evolutionists call evolution is actually adaptation. You see, Mike, in every organization, and I know you know this, but for our listeners' sake, there is a bunch of genetic information. In fact, there's more genetic information inside you that could make hundreds of different people. We could make, we could take your genetic information and clone a tall mic or a short mic, a, a big mic or a small mic, a blonde or, but some things we can't do. If you're missing parts of the gene pool, so there's a gene pool and that's all the genetic information that's available to all human beings. That, you may not have some, whereas I might have some of that genetic information, and that's what allows us to adapt. So if you and I were then to take our wives and go live in Antarctica and live for generation after generation after generation, we might have with us genes that allowed us to survive, or we might be missing those genes, in which case we would die out just as so many of the apples in the United States, those apple species died out because they didn't have the right genes that allowed them to survive in the United States. Okay. Very good. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. I'm Keith Kendricks. And just to remind you, uh, folks, Keith is an apologist with a master's degree in Christian apologetics from Biola uh, University uh, in the field of philosophy and theology. And Keith, it's always a uh, pleasure listening to you and uh, exploring the, the, the depth of your, your knowledge. Today, Keith, we're going to be talking about uh, intelligent design and a little bit more on genetics. And uh, our source for our material today is actually from the Journal of Creation, and it's going to be volume 25 and the year is 2011. So it's pretty recent stuff. Yeah, so, and Journal of Creation is a terrific magazine. It's very well written, top scholars, and peer-reviewed. So excellent source material. Yeah, and the, and the first thing that we're going to talk about, Keith, is about shared mutations. And the getting back to the apple analogy that we were just exploring, when you have a diverse genetic information set, whether it's apples or a dog or a human being, mm -hmm. and if you have mutations, you actually lose information. Now, getting back to the apple thing with Ka in Kazakhstan, pretty much the whole gene pool for apples is there, according to what you just said. That's right. But as this gene pool spreads out over the world, there's certain bits and pieces of information that are lost through mutation. Correct. And hence the adaptability is lost. And that's why we're losing species on different continents. Yes. And that's why there's resistance. I'm sorry, that's why there's disease and loss of resistance to disease. Or whether it's a, a, a drought problem or whatever, these uh, gene pools are being reduced because of mutation. And hence, 
we're losing those those bits and pieces. That's right. Extinction is the rule in life. Right. So, and this is uh, talked about by Sanford in his book, and it's genetic en- entropy. That's right. And we interviewed him. That's correct. Yeah, he'd be a good guest to have back on the. In show. fact, I, I noticed that in in one of the uh, footnotes in the shared mutation article that we're going to review, he was actually cited. That's right. So, but anyway, let's talk about shared mutations, Keith. All right. And tell me, tell me why. Uh, shared mutations and pseudogenes uh, from different, let's say, animals, whether it's ape to man, show that there is some sort of a common genetic an- ancestry, or at least from an evolutionary perspective. Well, this is, you're right, Mike, this is something that evolutionists have claimed. They claim that they have found a link between chimpanzees and human beings based on a supposed copying error that occurs in both. Now, in order to, for people to understand what we're talking about, we have to explain what a pseudogene is. So a pseudogene is basically a, what's thought to be a defective gene. So it, it looks like a gene, except that as far as we know, it doesn't transcribe to RNA. So we, in other words, it's not working. So they think it's defective, and so it's called a pseudogene. So it's almost like junk? That's right. It's part of what scientists claim to be junk DNA. Okay, so why is it that pseudogenes can be linked to or let's say likened to spelling mistakes? Okay, well this is one way of showing that something's been copied. So Mike, let's say that in your one of your essays for school you had made a rare spelling mistake in a sentence and later you were reading another paper that someone else wrote and it was talking about the exact same topic you were talking about, and lo and behold, it had this same rare spelling mistake, a, a kind of mistake that the other person wasn't likely to know was a mistake. Do you see how the chances of that happening would be very low, and that it'd be very likely that this person copied from your paper? Hmm. So, or, or the two of us copied from a common paper. That's right. That could be the explanation also. So when scientists find this, they find what looks like damaged genes, and they're both in the chimpanzee and human beings, they think this shows a copying error, and they think that it's proof that men did come from primates. All right, so they're claiming that a shared mutation, specifically, let's say, in the beta-globin pseudogene in chimpanzees and humans would be proof of common ancestry. That's right. However... Well, however, recent discoveries show that some pseudogenes actually do have function. So now this becomes a problem because if this is actually functional, then it's not the same thing as an error. It means that these genes, instead of being caused by mutations or changes that, were, that caused it to be defective and then were copied later on, it turns out that these are actually designed to be that way. So then, now it's no longer a problem if they look the same, because they're, they would both be providing the same function, both for chimpanzees and for human beings. And in this case, the function is to either produce hemoglobin or to regulate hemoglobin. Okay, and hemoglobin, of course, is the, um, the molecule inside the red blood cell that carries oxygen. That's right. And carbon dioxide. Of course, the carbon dioxide gets blown out of your lungs and the oxygen gets inhaled by your lungs and it's carried to the tissue to support uh, 
oxidation and cellular function. Yep. Okay, so these globin genes code for the hemoglobin. Right. And uh, my understanding is that the human genome carries nine of these globin genes, and it codes for the various types of hemoglobin that are used in the various stages of the human being's development. That's right. From now, the time that they're in utero to the time that they're babies to the time that they're adults. Adults. Isn't that amazing? So, now, so basically you have this switch-on, switch-off phenomenon with the various hemoglobin molecules being produced from the time that the child is in the, in the womb on to the point where they're an adult. Absolutely. And that itself, even this description, we're, we're setting up the situation that these atheists are claiming is evidence for evolution. But even describing the situation, do you realize how complex that is and how impossible it would be for some kind of naturalistic system to create nine different genes to control a pathway, a series of developmental growth that's going to move from one to the other to the other at precise times. This is just incredible. The odds of it possibly happening are astronomical. So what is it about the, uh, the mutations that evolutionists claim in the beta globin gene that make it incapable of being uh, translated? What, what's the big deal there? Well, there's parts of it that look like they have been shut off by what's called frame shifting. And I don't think we need to try explaining that to people, but it's basically, it's a, an error that occurs that kind of makes it impossible for the machinery that reads the gene to read it. Well, the problem is that that's not necessarily true, uh, which we'll get into. Well, the, but Keith, the, the thing is, the research from 10, 20 years ago suggested that these mutations occur in humans as well as chimpanzees and that sort of was a very, very strong argument for evolution. Yeah, I agree. That, it sounds like it's strong. It sounds like it's one of those copying issues. But what happens is you find it's, it's basically, it'd be as if in the scenario we gave of the rare spelling mistake, it turns out that it's not actually a spelling mistake, that the word is actually spelled correctly. And since the word is spelled correctly, then it doesn't matter that you used it and somebody else used it. You're using it correctly, and therefore it's not copying. So that's what we've, we're finding out. Evolutionists used to believe that there was junk DNA just littered the DNA, the genome. And it turns out that that's not true. You know, so why is this a science stopper? Well, it is a science stopper. That, that is the point. Because it's a science stopper because if I think that a certain gene is just junk, well, guess what? I stop studying it. It's just junk. It's an evolutionary throw-off. And for animals to evolve step-by-step step higher and higher, it is logical that at the highest level, such as humans are at, we should be loaded with junk DNA, genes that we're no longer using that are just discarded. And then since they're not being used, they mutate. And, you know, but such isn't the case. There's an, a book that just came out, actually, by biologist Jonathan Wells, and it's called The Myth of Junk DNA. And it shows all the evidence that, that virtually all of what we used to think was junk DNA actually is useful DNA. And tell me why the junk DNA is so useful and how it's transcribed going forward and backward and, and all those other things that make it so complex. Well, yeah, it is amazingly complex. And a lot of it is hard to describe over the air. But the complexity is so deep that what scientists thought actually was non-functional turns out it is functional and creates what are essentially pseudo-proteins. They're mirror images, they're non-coding RNA 
that creates a mirror image and that thereby controls the other coding parts. So it, it's just amazingly complex, but that seems to be what the is going on here with this beta globin gene. So how is it that all of these non-functional genes remain so similar over a period of five million years from, a, from an evolutionary point of view? Well, this is a conundrum for the evolutionists. See, what's happening is they think that there are, here are these genes that are not being used. Okay, so if they're not being used, then they cannot be acted on by natural selection. If they can't be acted upon by natural selection, then mutations that occur in them will stay. They won't be weeded out. They won't be adapted for. They can't be harmful because it's non-functional. So there's no such thing. The mutations just would build up, build up, and build up. But supposedly, humans and chimps diverged 5 million years ago. So how is it possible that over 5 million years, you have these two genes that look almost identical to each other still look the same? They wouldn't. That's more evidence that this is a completely false and blind alley that the evolutionists are falling, going down. So it seems like it's more likely that these things are used in regulation during the development of the species or the animal itself. That's right. These pseudogenes are not really pseudogenes. They are used either currently, and we just haven't figured out how, or they're used during development. So are scientists actually looking at this as a big problem, or are they ignoring it? Well... For junk DNA, a lot of scientists are ignoring it, but a lot of intelligent design scientists are using this as their avenues of research and have been coming up with really remarkable findings. So it's an encouraging area of research for scientists. That's awesome. Well, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. And you can email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. Well, Keith, how about if we uh, change gears a little bit here and talk about some gene associations and how it is that this complex array of information that's stored in, you know, whether it's the human genome or the genome of the wolf and the dog or apples, you, you take your pick, it doesn't matter. Why is it that gene associations just render more evidence to intelligent design and creation? Well, that's one of the really fascinating things that has been discovered recently, and it is terrific evidence for the intelligent design of organisms. Research has been looking into how genes work together in complex ways to produce certain traits in an organism. So it used to be thought that back to Mendelian genetics, that one gene produced one protein produced one trait. For instance, they thought that the yellow-colored peas were caused by one gene. Green-colored peas caused by another gene. And that was just the way it was. Well, we find out that it's much more complex than that. Right. So what we learned in high school about blue eyes and brown eyes, one gene you know, uh, being recessive and dominant isn't necessarily the, the, the bigger picture. That's it's the simplified version. Exactly. It's much more complex than that. Well, let's, let's talk about one of those traits that affects every human being, and that's the height gene. Right. And what, this, what goes into making somebody tall or short? Well, this was published in 2010 in Nature. It was a study that showed that height in humans is affected by over 180 different locations on the DNA. So exons, gene parts, all combined 180 different locations on the DNA. So 180 different genetic spots on DNA. 
all contribute in some way to the height of human beings. And it even goes into the discussions on growth hormone and the sensitivity to the receptors of the growth hormone. So it's not just, you know, how big your bones are going to be. Right. It's a whole bunch of things that go into it. Yeah, it's just amazing. And it's not just height. That's the amazing thing. It's all different kinds of variations. The ways that human beings and animals differ from each other, they're massively complex. Now, it's true that there are some simpler versions. There are some places where it is one gene that controls a certain feature. For instance, curly hair on dogs seems to be controlled by a single gene mutation or gene variation. But in many other traits, it seems to be this very complex system or internetworked system of genetic control. So, and, so one gene equals one protein equals one trait is not necessarily the, uh, the rule of thumb. That's right. In fact, in human beings, most of the common traits that make us different from one another are actually polygenetic. So uh, this is just fascinating. So polygenetic basically means that many genes work together to accomplish something. That's right. Whatever the trait is. That's right. So there's these incredible pathways, these interrelated series of steps that are involved in producing a trait. Wow. So you have to have not only the right genetic information, yep. but the right molecules in place. That's right right base pairs, yep. which is part of the unfolding of the human genome and, and the duplication process and translation and messenger production and protein production. So you have to have all those things in a correct location and in a correct place and time for it to happen. Yeah. Time, location, amount, all these complex variables. And that's why there is so much information needed to produce a single trait. So that's why there's so much genetic information from different parts of the chromosomes that are producing this information. Now, does this genetic information vary? Yes, it does. It varies through mutations. It may be intentionally varied by the organism itself, by the, the reading and writing machinery that codes and reads the codes. It may intentionally vary so that offspring are different, but the systems are robust enough that they can tolerate a lot of this variation. So if you have a harsh environment producing a lot of stress on an organism, there are variation-inducing elements that allow for that adaptation to occur. That's right. The genetic information will be deliberately varied. It's encoded to vary. So not all mutations are random accidents. A lot of the variations in genetic information were deliberately done by the organism cells and the sexual reproducing cells to make different kinds of babies so that with different genetic information, hopefully the offspring would be able to survive better in a hostile environment. And what causes the turn on and turn off of these variation-inducing genetic elements? Uh, it is actually the cell recognizing that the organism is under stress. So either it's being malnourished or there's being damage done. Somehow the organism is under stress and that throws switches, that throws like logic circuits in the cell that, hey, it's time to mix things up. So in the sexual reproducing cells, they are instructed to begin variation and start switching modules around, turning things off and turning things that were off on. 
So just a fascinating and if they don't adapt, intelligently they, designed thing. If they don't adapt, they die. Exactly right. Okay. And with them may go some of the genetic information that was previously available to the gene pool. Now, Keith, just a point of clarification for our listening audience. Okay. Uh, this almost sounds like it's evolution, but it's not. Tell no. me why it's not. Because the machinery had to be all in place to do this. It is adaptation. It is microevolution. It is adaptation by natural selection, but it is designed from the beginning. So the key ingredient here is that all of the information and all of the parts are already there. That's right. It's not like a mutation and an adaptation occurred because new information was added. Correct. The information was already present. That's right. From day one. That's right. And if the variation is too much, if a real random mutation happens in a crucial part, then the organism, the pathway fails and the organism can't tolerate the loss of that trait and you get death of the organism. Or disease state. Right. That's right. So, but what you're saying then is that there are some limits to change. Too much causes these complex systems to break down and that would cause disease, death, or deformity. That's right. So now that's a level of complexity, okay? So you've got these complex pathways with all this different genetic information providing a single trait, but we now know there's even an additional layer of complexity, and that is that all these different pathways are linked together. They are interconnected. Now, this is just incredibly complex. So instead of say, what we might describe as multiple pathways all being separate, it's like a spider's web. Everything is interwoven. It's like the woof and warp. Everything is connected with each other. So now, not only do you have multiple genes controlling a single trait, but you also have a single gene, if it becomes mutated or varies, it will affect multiple pathways. Now, I'm sure that you have seen this in your private practice as a physician. You've seen when a person comes in that has a specific genetic defect, a mutation, and it shows itself in multiple different ways. I'll give you an example. Okay. A perfect example, I believe, is that when I have a patient who has had recurrent thromboembolism, that means a clot in their leg or even a pulmonary embolism, let's say they have it two, three, four times in their lifetime, we start looking for these genetic deficiencies and there are certain protein deficiencies in their clotting cascade that they can have okay. that causes them or allows them a predisposition, predisposition to clot. Now, if these systems are not uncovered and corrected for, then the patient can actually die from a pulmonary embolism, a clot to their lung that makes their heart and their lungs stop. Gotcha. So these are all deficiencies like a protein S deficiency. Mm -hmm. It's not because of evolution, it's because of lost information. Right. This is where there, there's loss of information or a genetic breakdown where that protein S is no longer manufactured, which is a critical part of, the, of preventing the human cascade of clotting. So does it produce any other kinds? Does it produce just a clotting problem or does it also just, produce it, other? It's, a, it's just a clotting problem, but it causes okay. the whole organism to break down. Gotcha. So, but there are diseases where there's a single disease trait and it might cause multiple diseases. So, for instance, it might interfere with human growth hormones so the person is not as tall as they would normally be, but also they're more susceptible to, say, diabetes, or also they're more susceptible to spinal deformations or some other type of 
disease. And that's because of this interrelatedness between these different complex pathways. And just it just is a mind-boggling array of complexity. It, it's incredible. Human beings are put together in an incredibly mind-boggling way. Wow. Actually, now, you know what? Um, uh, sickle cell disease comes to mind. Okay. So if somebody has sickle cell disease, mm -hmm. they, they not only sickle and they, they can have severe bone pain because of microinfarction because the red blood cell doesn't flow properly through the small capillaries, but they can have brain infarcts, right. strokes, they can have right. heart attacks, splenic infarcts, all kinds of other bad disease states can result as a result of uh, sickle cell disease. Well, Michael, all this, this complexity is entirely inconsistent with these systems, these complex interrelated systems arising from natural selection. Because remember, natural selection acts on each small change. And in this case, what we now know is that each small chain, a change affects multiple other complex pathways. So how is a person ever supposed to get improved? How, are they, how is an organism supposed to build up and get stronger, more new organs, new traits that it didn't have before if all of its other traits are are being diseased and beginning to fall apart because you start to mess with one of the genes that's controlling multiple pathways. It's just incredible. Well, I think that our, our listening audience has to be reminded that genetic mutations causes a loss of information right. and not a gain of information. Or it may be indifferent. It may be, and that's what we think is happening when you have these variation-inducing genetic elements. It's, it's, not a, it, it's a change, it's a variation, but it's not necessarily bad. It's the organism doing it itself. And if you happen to be in the right environment, then it'll be positive. And if you're in the wrong environment, it's switched on a gene that you can't use. And so it's neutral. So actually, a lot of variations are just neutral. Keith, let's talk about epigenetic factors that also play a role in traits. Okay, well, this is really fascinating because this is something new that has been discovered within the last 10 years or so, and that is that not all of the coding that's going on is actually in the DNA. There is proteins, there are proteins that rest on top of the DNA that are called epigenetic factors, and these help to control whether genes are on or off, they control how the copying machinery works, and it affects development and how an organism grows. So it, it's incredible. It's, it's information that's stored on top of the DNA, but it's not part of the code of the DNA. So another incredible complexity that just shows the truth that life is intelligently designed. So if, if I can sum it up with a uh, probably an oversimplified statement, we're, we're going to say something like this. Life is far more complex and interconnected than we ever imagined. That's right. And I think that the most recent human DNA research going back to the Human Genome Project is starting to elucidate this. That's and right. That's one of the reasons why I say that the, the human genome is actually the thumbprint of God. Yes. It's, and it, there's so many different areas that it's complex that they, we've discovered that it's complex. For instance, just to make a single gene. Do you know that it is not the case that the DNA will open up and then the machinery will read only one part of DNA and that's your gene? Actually, it'll read up part of the DNA, then information from another completely different part of the DNA will be read up, then information from 
another whole chromosome on different chromosomes. All of those pieces of a gene will then be combined together to make the whole gene. So you're saying a single gene is built from many different sections of DNA code, even from different chromosomes. That's exactly right. And you, do you know that this is the way information is stored on a computer hard drive? The file, the letter that you write to your wife on, say, Word document, that's actually stored on your hard drive in multiple different locations. And the computer keeps track of where those pieces are. That's the way information is stored on our DNA. It's incredibly complex. It's actually a hierarchical system of information storage. So, Keith, intelligent design for a computer system. Right. I mean, clearly, you had to have somebody of, uh, with an ounce of intelligence to create a program, not to mention the fact create the, the, the computer itself and the hard drive and put it all together. So why is it that scientists today have such a hard time wrapping their brain around an intelligent designer? I don't get that. Well, it's just your guess as to what their rationale is, but it certainly doesn't seem to be looking objectively at the evidence. Here's another thing that, that shows the incredible complexity of DNA and the genetic information. Now that you've got this gene, this piece of information to make a protein all assembled, do you know, Mike that that one section of genetic information can actually create multiple different proteins? Uh, I do know that. Isn't that amazing? But I want you to tell the listening audience why it is that that same grouping of, of base pairs, this right. gene, That's right. can code for multiple different proteins. Why is that? Because there's more information that shows how to read it. For instance, it might be read one time right to left. Or in the next time, it might be read left to right. Or it'll be read starting in the middle. Or it'll be read jumping from place to place. All of these produce functional proteins. Now, this is just incredible. And you see how it's an obvious defeater of evolution. Because let's say you have a gene that produces eight different proteins. If I create a mutation in that gene and change it, it doesn't just destroy one protein, it destroys eight different proteins. How can natural selection... But it created one new protein, a non-functional protein. A non-functional protein, and, exactly and that's, right. That's why I always say it causes disease, death, or deformity, and I hope that our listening audience can understand that in a very simplistic way. And here is an even further level of complexity in genetic information. You talked about the non-functional proteins. Mike, do you know what the ratio of functional proteins to non-functional proteins is? Well, I, I read the statistic, Keith, right out of the article. And the odds of getting even a even one small functional protein by chance is 1 times 10 to the 76th. Yes, folks, 76 zeros after that 10. It's a huge number. Is that incredible? And, that's, and that means that, that that genetic defect, just by, by chance, is not going to produce a functional protein that has significance, but it can cause more damage than it's worth. Mike, just so our listeners understand, that number, 1 times 10 to the 76, do you know how many molecules, or rather atoms, there are in the entire universe? 1 times 10 to the 60. <laughs> 1 times 10 to the 60 molecules in the entire universe. Yet, if you randomly mutate an amino acid chain of a small one, 150 molecules, 
the chances of you getting a protein that actually functions in any living organism at all is one times 10 to the 76. Just incredible odds. But, but Keith, the, the evolutionists have an answer to that. Oh, do they? Multiverses. So yeah. you, you said 1 to the 60 in, in the universe, so they, they have to throw out multiverses just to expand their gene pool. That's right. And you would need multiverses. If you, if you had a trillion different universes, you still wouldn't come up with the number of atoms that would equal to the odds of getting a single protein by randomly adjusting amino acid chains. All right. So if I can just really, really quickly summarize this uh, in the context of life. A single gene is built from many different sections of DNA and it codes on even different chromosomes. Yep. And that each protein affects multiple pathways and multiple traits. You got it. And that's why genetic diversity is already pre-programmed into the gene. And that's why genetic mutations are more harmful or neutral than right. they are beneficial. That's right. Exactly right. All right. Well, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And Mike, we have about five minutes left in the show. We plan to talk about another interesting topic that was brought up in our Journal of Creation, and that was about eugenics. And maybe we can delve into this for the next five minutes because yeah, I, I found this very interesting. I, I think it's fascinating also. And, you know, I'm going to give you a quote, Keith, and I want you to expand on it. An evolutionist by the name of Daniel Dennett said that Darwinism is the universal acid that dissolves every ethical and moral system that it encounters. Yeah. That, what, is, what did he mean by that? Well, he was talking about how damaging evolution is to morals. Now, he was referring to morals from religion, but he, I don't think he realized just how true what he was saying is. Historically, we know that the theory of evolution has done incredible damage to the world through things like racism, eugenics, and what we're going to do is just go briefly through a little bit of the history of some of what's happened in the political realm because of evolutionary theory. Now, I want our, our listening audience to recall that Charles Darwin published The Origin of the Species in 1859, and that virtually every field of study after that tried to put its study it's in the context of evolution that's right yeah okay. it's an amazing thing you began to have people say that well religion also evolved you began to have people say that ethics evolved and everyone was looking at these different realms as evolving so it became something that could be used by nefarious politicians to justify their deep-held views like racism yeah and darwin and Ernst Haeckel sure. were both deeply racist. Right. Ernst Haeckel, I'm sure people remember, was the German scientist who falsified the embryo drawings to make it look like human beings had developed along similar developmental traits as animals do. It turns out that that's completely false. And yes. he was actually, at the time, kicked out of his university for faking those drawings. Now, folks, those drawings uh, were, were first drawn in the 1930s, and we all learned this in molecular biology. And it went something like this, ontogeny recapit recapitulates phylogeny. Those drawings were absolutely false, but yet they're still in biology books. Right. It's unbelievable. Yeah, even last year in the Texas school books, there were still pictures of Haeckel's embryos. Well, the eugenics movement developed right out of this atheistic, racist viewpoint. 
and it was spearheaded. This is the unfortunate part. It was spearheaded by scientists. And this is one of the reasons why on this show we say you have to be careful about what scientists say. So, Keith, tell me what does eugenics mean and what does it imply? Well, as a physician, you probably better be able to define it, but it's talking about that we can control humans and breed them just the way you would breed animals. So if you wanted to breed horses to get taller horses, you control who can who mates with who, and they wanted to do the same thing with human beings because they wanted to get rid of what they thought were inferior races. So it was incredible. The scientists, biologists, zoologists, psychologists, and doctors all promoted this, and they were from prestigious universities, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, in England. They were members of the Royal Society, and they organized, they sold the idea to the public, and they influenced politicians to get laws enacted. It's just incredible. And this was all linked to Darwin, and even his sons were sitting on these societies in England to promote this uh, eugenics movement to force sterilization of people who had lesser aptitudes or traits that were not considered favorable. That's right. And there's a book on this from Dennis Sewell called The Political Gene, How Darwin's Ideas Change Politics. And he documented that there is, quote, no doubt about the lineage of eugenics itself, close quote. And he states that the, quote, years leading up to the First World War, the eugenics movement looked like a Darwin family business, close quote. One of the uh, surprising things that I found in this article, Keith, was that in Britain in 1913, Winston Churchill actually introduced a bill that included forced sterilization. Yeah, amazing. I was shocked by that. Yet G.K. Chesterton fought against it and was able to defeat the bill. Thanks, Keith. You have been listening to Evidence for Faith, and you can send your comments or questions to us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. And remember to join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah,